Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic, overseeing our toxic phase one and Cleveland Clinic sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Adriana Alvarez, a regional oncologist and palliative medicine physician in our regional oncology network. She's here today to talk to us about cancer-related anorexia and cachexia syndrome. Welcome, Adriana. Hi, thank you very much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about your role. So you're in the region, you see you're a medical oncologist, you have training in palliative medicine. Tell us a little bit about about your role. So I started this path in oncology as a palliative care physician, and then I continued my passion about taking care of patients following hematology oncology fellowship. So right now I'm kind of happy I can wear these two hats in my daily practice. And also patients are a continuum, they're moving targets. So sometimes I need to do more the role of an oncologist. Sometimes I need to be more at palliative care. Sometimes to be, I need to be more optimistic. Sometimes I need to be more pessimistic. So I kind of like this balance and able to see, be with my patient and through the whole continuum of care. And then um, as a regional oncologist, are there, are there particular types of patients that you see more often than not, or you kind of see the spectrum? I see the spectrum. I kind of prefer a little bit more um, lung cancers and GI cancer, but I see a little bit of everything. So I'm very happy that I'm able to work with the team and main campus, and we have a fluid communication to better serve our patients. Excellent. Well, today we're going to kind of focus on cancer-related anorexia cachexia syndrome. And so let's start off what is that? We have a, a lot of people that might be listening from a lot of backgrounds, so maybe just as a backdrop, what, what exactly is that? Well, there are many definitions. I would like to start with something that I recently hear about that this is from ancient times. So uh, from Greece, Hippocrates actually uh, invented the word cachexia. So uh, it's very humbling because look how many more years we are after that, and we are still talking the, about the topic. And at the time, it was a sign of impending death. And you know, and now when a patient is cachectic, that's what it looked like, that it's close to death. So uh, it's very humbling. And after all this year, we are still talking about the topic, and we don't have a clear solution. But to define this, I could say that it's a complex syndrome in patients with cancer that is characterized by weight loss, sarcopenia, or also loss of lean uh, muscle mass, uh, weight loss, um, that is not simply taken care of by nutrition. So it's more complex than that. If we go by also definition, how we, you know, in the clinical practice can define that is um, a patient that has lost more than 5% of the body weight in the last six months or in patients that are uh, skinnier, uh, body max index of 20 is when uh, it's a weight loss of 2%. So it, that is very important, I think, for us as an oncologist of palliative care to identify it because especially in the United States, our populations are overweight. So we can have an overweight patient that is cachectic and we cannot identify that. So one of the things I do in my daily practice, one of the first questions when I go to the review of symptoms is, you know, how's your weight? How's your appetite? Or if I have a patient, the first time I'm in, you know, introducing them, okay, how, how 
Do you feel like you're done with your appetite? Have you lost weight? Patients try to underestimate that uh, or not reveal all the symptoms. At the same time, they want to look as strong when they see an oncologist. So we are able to give treatment. So uh, it's very important for us to try to identify that because there's a prognosis sign too. It's, it's often shocking how much weight loss people will come in with and say things like, oh, but I was trying. And it's so dramatic compared to what they would ever be able to have done previously. And actually, some of them are happy. Like, yeah, I lost weight, I was trying this diet. And, and then, you know, unfortunately, we have to break the news. Well, something else was going on. And again, just so people can think about terms properly, um, because I think people kind of interchange anorexia versus cachexia. Well, anorexia is lack of appetite, basically, and can be uh, associated with many illnesses, um, HIV, infections, sometimes psychological disorders and so forth. But cachexia is a syndrome that's more complex. In, and, and right now we are looking into the pathophysiology. So it's not about just intake, as I mentioned before. And that's important to uh, take into consideration when we talk to our patients, we do education to our colleagues and, and patient family members. But it is state where there is an interaction between the cancer cells and the host that ultimately will lead to um, hi like hypermetabolism. So patients are spending more energy that they can afford and hypoanabolism. So, so basically more that's why it's very important to look at the muscle loss because that is, is a kind of a sign of uh, hypermetabolism. And in that pathophysiology, there are many cytokines, interleukins, hormones that play a role. So it's not that simple to fix. Sometimes we think that this is related to treatment or the patient is not eating, but appetite, actually appetite loss or anorexia is a consequence of the cachexia and not necessarily the cause. And that, I think, is the, is the important point to, as a take-home message for everybody to remember. Yeah. Oftentimes, as you say, because of the disease or because of their treatments, patients may not be eating as well. How do you, what's the best way for someone to tease out kind of why people aren't eating and, and, and really if, in fact, cachexia is the cause or it's the if it's just they're not eating, well, as an example. And that's an excellent question because there are some people who also are trying to classify precachexia, cachexia, and then a cachexia that we cannot fix anymore, our refractory cachexia. So there are, uh, it's a syndrome complex. So cachexia, anorexia don't come alone. So they usually come also with a other symptoms that we have to take and pay attention to. So that's why our palliative care team is so important. What if the patient is depressed and is not eating because of depression? What if the patient is constipated or have nausea for other reasons that we can fix? Is the patient having, for instance, um, a GI uh, cancer, are they having a bowel obstruction? Are they having a malabsorption? situation. Are our patients with head and neck cancer undergoing significant mucositis that they cannot swallow? So I think that proper history will help us to take care of other symptoms that may contribute to increased nutrition, because nutrition could be a part of it in the term on the in the context. So paying more attention to the patients, patient reported outcomes, making sure that the patient feels comfortable sharing this and working as a team will help us to try to identify what is going on. You mentioned a lot of different reasons why people might not be eating and that would lead to, to, to loss of weight and things. 
Is there something specific that can be done to diagnose this anorexia cachexia syndrome, or is it more of a diagnosis of exclusion and sort of optimizing symptoms and, and seeing what's left? I think I have a, a little bit of both. They are not standardized ways to diagnose anorexia cachexia. There are some markers that we're looking into, for instance, C-reactive uh, protein as a sign of inflam inflammation, hypoalbuminemia, so loss of protein. So those are things that we can check and see, you know, if I see a patient that is having these issues, I can think about that. Um, also sometimes checking some hormones, uh, testosterone, especially in males, because cachexia is, it seems to be affecting that. Cortisol levels and things like that can help. And something that we don't use in the practice but we could, and I think we should, is we use CAT scans all the time to evaluate a follow-up or response to treatment. So there is a way to look into the lean muscle, especially in the, when we do CAT scans, the abdomen pelvis, to look at the L3 level and see the characteristics of the, of the muscle. So that if we see sarcopenia, that is the loss of the uh, muscle, then that can help us to identify those patients, so to, to be more assertive in, in that case. And so we've identified uh, a patient. We know they have cachexia. Of course, you know, there's a, a, an importance to treat the underlying cancer in most cases. What else can we do to treat? Is there anything that's been developed specifically to help? So unfortunately, there are no FDA approved drugs. Recently, in recent years, they have brought attention from uh, many organizations like ASCO made recently a, a guideline about cachexia anorexia. So I think it's, it's, we're having a prime time in this topic. I'm glad to hear that. And even ESMO, the European Society of Medical Oncology, to give some recommendations. So in terms of, term of medications, so the only two that are kind of recommended in certain situations are progesterone analogs like mesestrol acetate and also steroids. Uh, however, those also have side effects and only fix a little bit of the problem. Mesestrol acetate also comes with significant side effects in the long term and much of the weight gain that we're looking for is fat, not necessarily lean uh, muscle mass. And, and why I'm focusing a little bit more on lean body mass, because that will uh, give the patient functionality or more strength to do the things that they want to do. You know, we're talking about quality of life. So these two Asians are the one, there also have been many studies. So if we go into the pathophysiology, so there are uh, situations where in some cases, testosterone can be maybe recommended. Combination of medications like, for instance, mesestrate acetate and olanzapine have been also used. Cannabinoids is a kind of a great topic because there are groups that say yes, there are some groups that say no, so that we need to still research. So I, I don't want to endorse that. Um, it, we know that um, cannabinoids are more helpful in patients with HIV. It's not that clear with cancer. Um, however, I think it's an area to um, explore. And then um, if we have a patient with early satiety or like we talk about, you know, sometimes the patient says, well, I'm pooping, but we take an x-ray and it's uh, full of poop, then prokinetics or can help like metoclopropamide. So that's why it paying attention to what other things we can do to help. Some patients, uh, some antidepressants um, can help with appetite like mirtazapine. So those are things that we can consider um, at, at some point. Tell me a little bit about best ways to manage 
patient and particularly family expectations? I mean, it seems like um, sometimes there's battles in families like, you know, they're not eating, you know, eating such a, you know, culturally important, you know, sharing meals and having people eat and sometimes patients with advanced cancer, they just don't eat and they don't gain weight. And how, how do you set those expectations and, and have those family discussions? Well, that's very difficult. You know, and uh, it's sometimes not a conversation that happens in one seat. So, and, and that is a message, something I learned that sometimes it takes multiple conversation time. And, um, and that's why it's very helpful to work in a team, you know, that will reinforce that. Um, so I try to explain in a more gentle way what's going on. Uh, and like I mentioned before, you know, not just the nutrition. I said, well, the factory is in a strike. So the factory is your body. So no matter how much elements you give to construct, in this case, it could be you know, muscle, proteins, things like that, the body's on a strike. So actually feeding you or you know, feeding our loved one may cause more symptoms. Of course, you know, at, this conversation will be different at the beginning, right? Where, again, we have to explore the other thing that, you know, I have a diagnosis of cancer, very depressed, I don't want to eat, okay? That is different than if I have a patient that, you know, have gone to two or three lines of therapies and is actually dying. So the conversation will share, you know, will um, take other turns. So, and I try to explain as well that sometimes more food can cause more symptoms the patient can feel more uncomfortable, nausea, vomiting, um, bloating, uh, so more discomfort. And also sometimes I kind of play the devil advocate and I look at the patient and I, you know, I try to be on their side and I say to the patient, well, now I'm going to try to be a mediator here. You know, what do you think? You know, because uh, sometimes patients are really bothered because it's the only, it seems like it's the only topic of conversation. So like, he's not eating, he's not eating. And I said, well, okay, let's stop that and what is concerning you and try to find other ways to take care of our loved one. So the symbolic kind of meaning of the meal maybe can be shift to, okay, let's do a massage, let's get together for a talk, um, let's try to m make a momentum of your life, uh, let me put some lip moisturizer on your lips. So there are other ways to take care of, because I think that the issue with patients taking care of their loved one is that they want to do everything possible. And they see a patient, a person, that is changing in front of their life and is very distressing. So they want to do everything possible. And what is humanly possible to do is nurturing. We, we learn to nurture since we are born, right? So I, I think that is the, the, the shift and we have to be very humble when we have this conversation, a lot of silence. And I sometimes tell the stories about you know, some patients that, you know, towards the end of life, they were kind of faking, they were sleeping because they didn't want to talk with the patient about the food. They know that relatives were going to come in to visit them and they just played, you know, I'm sleeping. I don't want to talk about this. I don't want them to offer me a meal. And try to explain that, you know, to families that, you know, we can take away precious moments if we're really focusing on that. And as a team, we're going to evaluate everything. And I try to support and say, well, you know, let me talk to a nutritionist to see if we can talk about more, you know, dense, nutritious meals, like maybe more quantities, more calories, or things that you can enjoy, uh, things like that. But again, it's not easy. It takes more than one talk. 
Sometimes we're not successful. I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> but clear, I think that we have to have a professionals that when, I mean, it's an indication for TPN, it's an indication for the true feeding. Those questions are going to arise. And we have to be kind of firm, gently again, but that is not going to create a benefit. Actually, they have been reviewed. You know, they, there were many trials in the 80s and the 90s with TPN, and patients actually, the survival was shorter. Patients died from infections, uh, complications from TPN, and things like that. Now, if you're telling me a patient that have a short bowel syndrome or an obstruction, let's suppose an ovarian cancer, transitory time, of course, that could be indicated at the time. Or if I have a patient with a head and neck cancer with a curative intent, that I know that all the it's not cachexia just because of the syndrome, it's also what I'm doing to them with the radiation, the chemotherapy and all that, certainly those patients can benefit from those interventions. But we have to be clear when and how. And so I'm glad you mentioned the whole supplemental nutrition and things like TPN and things, because that, that does seem like it comes up as sort of a, a grab to try to to get that nutrition in people sometimes and stop weight loss. You, of course, have the advantage of being, having training in hemoc and palliative medicine. But, you know, I'm guessing that in most cases that would be an ideal setting for a referral to palliative medicine or or nutrition to sort of have those discussions as a multidisciplinary approach? Yes, absolutely. I actually want to mention that, you know, one of the uh, studies that came a few years back by Dr. Tamel from Harvard, when they were analyzing intervention of palliative care and mm. lung cancer, and the patient had a better survival, many of the interventions help actually to live longer and to live better. So I try to encourage a referral to palliative care from day one. So the patients are familiar with it. So they see us as a part of a team from the beginning. It's not like, okay, after six months, I'm going to send you right now to palliative care. Because they seem like, oh, you're abandoning me. What is going on? I'm doing worse. So from day one, I think it's very important that we identify that. Uh, to help us with this, and not only in the conversation, but to talk about that complex syndrome that goes along with cachexia and anorexia in cancer, other things that we have to take a look at. Nutrition referral, yes, and not only for the recommendations that we talked about before, about those dense high-calorie foods of, you know, what could be gentle in your stomach, what you can, you know, create, but also to educate our patients, because sometimes they do these diets that are detrimental and they don't have a scientific base. And so I have a patient that's already deteriorating in catabolism. And then, you know, I have these diets that are super extreme. So I don't want to go into details, you know, keto diets or macrobiotic diets. I mean, it might have a role in certain circumstances, but not in the general population. So sometimes having a specialist in nutrition that can, you know, explain those things I try not to use the word educate that much because I don't feel like I need to educate, but I, kind of showing the patients the other side of the coin of the complications. I had patients that, you know, they're coming and um, I said, well, I'm this keto diet. I'm very happy. I'm losing like 15 pounds on treatment. And I, okay, I'm a little bit disturbed by that. You know, yeah. so well, I think that this is not the time to do this. Let's wait and see because, you know, maybe it's not the right thing for you. At it's this usually well-intentioned. It's just not the right goal. Correct. And sometimes they don't hear from us uh, directly as an oncologist, but they can hear from another member of the team. You know, so, so, so sometimes having our team, our nurse, our nutritionist, our palliative care. So everybody in the same kind of mindset 
will help to reinforce that information to it's the patient. It's important you mention nurses because sometimes it might be the care coordinator nurse and sometimes it's the infusion nurse that tells us about things that perhaps the patient or family won't tell us. Absolutely. That's why it's very important that the report of the patient to us, oncologist, is not that great sometimes. Uh, it could be us, you know, because we're busy. Could be the patient that they want to, you know, I'm doing super well. I want more chemo. But yes, I, I take the time to ask uh, the nurse, hey, what do you see? What do you like? How did the patient look? I think that those are important things to pay attention to. So I guess just to, to, to wrap up from a treatment standpoint, you mentioned before about we're learning more about the pathophysiology and cytokines and things that might be important. Um, anything exciting from a trial standpoint that you know, we don't have anything currently FDA approved, but is there anything that looks promising that might be available soon? Yeah, so actually knowing more about the pathophysiology has shown us several pathways that we could potentially interact. For instance, there's a cytokine, mitostaurine, that is a kind of a situation where we can intersect to improve anabolism of muscle that is an investigation. There are selective and androgen receptor modulators that also in research right now, one of the more famous one is Enobor. SARM. And also, I think the one that's bringing more attention is um, agrelin agonist. One of those is anamorelin, and that has been studied in two recent trials, uh, Romano 1 and Romano 2. Uh, actually, uh, Dr. Timel has been one of the leads on those trials. Has not been approved here, however, has been approved in Japan. So in some areas of our world, is used. And now, it has been shown basically this medication is oral. So that is, is easy to take, no significant side effect, but improve anabolism and improve also um, appetite. Now, one of the two things that the drug had to prove, to be approved perhaps, one was the, okay, the weight gain, the increase in lean muscle mass, that, but they were not able to, they didn't succeed in improve activity. Like uh, hand grip was one of the things that they were measuring and it didn't meet that endpoint. However, I think that we're getting smarter in the way that, you know, the FDA now is looking about quality of life too as an endpoint. So I'm hopeful that they will look into more of that, at least to give an opportunity. There were like two quite big trials in lung cancer. So I'm hoping that they could be um, better explored. And another thing I wanted to mention about the importance of the research and all that, especially because you're in phase one and clinical trial is that sarcopenia is also associated with significant increase in side effect from chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. So maybe one of the things to, especially when we are in, in certain trials with looking for toxicity, maybe evaluating the sarcopenia levels in patients can uh, help us to determine the dose for that particular population. Mm -hmm. And many of our patients that go to phase one had exhausted many lines of treatment, so CACEXA uh, will be a little bit more prominent. So I think that that could, it's something that um, some researchers are looking into. And it's not that difficult to get. Nowadays with the CAT scan, they're able to measure that. And impedance is uh, not that expensive, easy, non-invasive uh, to see the composition of the body. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is an area to investigate along with, you know, other endpoints because that can help with determining who is going to have more side effect or not. Like the same way that we sometimes measure, uh, okay, are you a low metabolizer, high metabolizer, how's your sarcopenia level, you know, uh, in terms of toxicity. 
That's great. Well, this is a really important topic, and I appreciate all your insights. Thanks for being with us. Well, thank you so much for having me, and it has been very humbling, and especially coming from the region. You know, I'm not like a main leader, expert at main campus uh, like you guys are, So, but we work all as a team, and I, I wanted to recognize also our um, excellent palliative care team has been one of the pioneers in the country. Still, we have, we're growing in the region too, so I have a very close relationship with them. My best memories and uh, I really appreciate everything I learned from them because I'm, I, my patients are benefiting from it. That's excellent. Well, thank you. Okay, thank you. To make a direct online referral to our Tosic Cancer Institute, complete our online cancer patient referral form by visiting clevelandclinic.org slash cancer patient referrals. You will receive confirmation once the appointment is scheduled. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash canceradvancespodcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our ConsultQD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.